So it's my pleasure to introduce our, our uh, guest pastor today, uh, Bob Bryant. Uh, Bob comes to us a um, variety of background. He's been involved with the, the Dream Center. Uh, we heard uh, previous pastor Drew speak a little bit uh, with his uh, involvement in that. Uh, Bob's also been involved in the uh, Barnabas Ministries with uh, Doug Schmidt. Uh, he's also pastored several churches around the state and uh, also has his own uh, uh, professional uh, duties that he, he has uh, in, in working that keeps him busy as well. So I'll let him expand on that a little further, but if you would welcome uh, Bob Ryan. Thank you. Thanks, Lynn. Yeah, I started out as a lawyer, and I knew I needed to repent, so I went towards the ministry, and uh, still repenting. So, um, no, I, I do good stuff. I do estate planning, so it's nothing bad, guys. Um, so it's great to be here with you. I've had a fun journey along the way. I knew in eighth grade I was supposed to be a lawyer. Eighth grade, what do you know in eighth grade? And so I just went that direction, and then um, my wife was really happy because she didn't want to marry a pastor because her dad was a pastor. And six months after we were married, God called me into full-time ministry. So, <laughs> joke's on her. <laughs> so, um, and it's been a great journey. I pastored a church in Romeo, just about an hour from here, for about nine years. Then I went to work at Woodside for five years with Pastor Doug Schmidt. And then um, from there, we went out to Oregon for a couple years. Pastored out there, realized the West Coast is really unique. And uh, I really wanted to be back in the Midwest. And so we're back here, and I got to... Uh, be an executive pastor with Triumph Church, which is the largest African-American church, and that was just uh, wonderful, uh, just great cultural learning experience, and, and so I'm, uh, it's been a great journey. So I'm glad to be here with you, and um, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, and as you're turning there, you probably remember one of the heroes of the faith named in Hebrews 11 is King David. Uh, King David, a man after God's own heart, uh, he, you know, just to preface this, some of you are godly men and women who love the word, love the Lord, practice your faith, and yet you have completely dysfunctional families. I want you to know you're in good company with King David. King David had a number of kids. A couple of them were Absalom, Amnon, and Tamar. And so it was very unfortunate in their young adulthood, Amnon lusted after his sister Tamar and ended up violating her. Horrendous. And Absalom, her other, one of her other brothers, took her into his home to protect her, to love her, and to watch over her for two years. He nurtured this anger toward his brother Amnon for the disgusting violation of what he did to his sister. And at the end of that two years, Absalom took revenge and killed his brother Amnon. Well, Absalom knew David's dad uh, would not take this sitting down. So Absalom took off, and he hid from David. And during that time, Absalom realized he thought he should be in charge. And so he wanted to dethrone his dad, David. So he grew an army, so much so that King David knew he had to flee for his own life. And so Absalom then came back into town. He took over the throne of David, and he was now king of Israel, but not for too long. Him and his beautiful long hair got stuck in a tree, and Joab, uh, David's commander, slew him. So then they were ready to send out a messenger to let David know he could come back and retake the throne of God. This sounds familiar, right? And so they're getting ready to send out a messenger, and Ahimez shows up and says, I want to be the person who goes to David. I want to be the messenger that tells David that he can come back to the throne. 
And Joab, the commander, says, we love you, Ahimez. You're a loyal servant. You're a priest. We love you, and we're not going to send you. And Ahimez says, well, why not? And, he, and Joab says, the last couple times we sent messengers out to David when he, in hiding, his men, David's men, killed the messenger. We really like you, Ahimez. We don't want you to die. So we're going to send a non-Israelite. We're going to send a Cushite who's expendable. And we're going to send him to tell David which is kind of sad, but uh, and Ahimaaz says he's undissuaded, right? He's like, I want to be the guy that goes. He's, Joab says, well, we're already choosing this Cushite to go and tell David, and Ahimaaz says, I want to go, and Joab's like, you know there's no reward, there's no benefit, there's, you know, the risk is you're going to have to tell David that his son is dead, and he can return. So we're sending the Cushite, and Ahimaaz says, well, let me follow the Cushite, let me go second, and Joab says, fine, you go second. Well, Ahimez never was planning to be number two. He was planning to get there first, and he took the longer route, but somehow he was the faster one to get there. And the point of the story I wanted to bring out for Hebrews 12 is this. Ahimez said something amazing in this passage, and he says, come what may, I want to run. Regardless of what happens to me, I want to be the one that runs. No matter what happens, life or death, Happiness or destruction, I want to run. Come what may, I want to run the race. And that's the title of the sermon. Come what may, I want to run. Just as the first question for you to think on, is there anything in your life right now that you have that much inspiration for? That you would be willing to give up everything, that regardless of what happens to you, no matter what comes your way, I want to pursue that. Just think on that as we talk through this idea. And when we come to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it talks about this idea of we're running a race. And I would just say a number of the races that we're running, you, know, you might think about them as a race of relationships. Maybe you're in a, a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, a husband-wife relationship. Um, maybe you have a best friend. Maybe there is uh, children, and children have parents, and there's all kinds of races of relationship that we're running. We're running this along with these people that we really love. Maybe your race is your job or your career. Maybe your race is now in retirement, and you're running this race of, you know, am I pursuing what I want to pursue? Am I doing the things I want to do, and I'm running this race? Maybe the race is church, your small group, your prayer partners, and there's going to become good times and difficult times in all of those races. Every single one of them will have good moments and terrible moments. And the question is, can you say with a hymnus, come what may, I want to run. Come what may in my marriage, I want to run. Come what may with my children, prodigal son, I want to run. Come what may in my church, I want to run this race. Can we say that with Ahimaaz? What God is saying in Hebrews chapter 12, just to give us a context, is he's saying those are all great races. Every one of them, relationships, jobs, retirement, church, your spiritual growth, all of them. But they're all sub-races to one ultimate race that God sees. And the ultimate race is faithfulness or faithlessness. And in Hebrews 12, he isolates that idea of Every single thing. Are you running the race of your relationships with faithfulness? Are you running the race of your career with faithfulness? Are you running the race with your church, interesting, with faithfulness? Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
It says, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. John Piper, uh, author, theologian, pastor, uh, I thought it was helpful to me. Sometimes a good definition comes in a contrast. And he was asked the question, what's the difference between faith and hope? And, And one of the things he said was, hope is subsumed inside faith. But here's the idea. Hope is trusting in future. And faith is trusting in a person. Hope is trusting in a future event, a future reality, say heaven. Goodness, God will turn bad towards good, trusting in the future. But faith is trusting in the person of Jesus Christ, trusting in who he says he is, the son of God, trusting in that he came and lived a sinless life, trusting in that he died for our sins, saying that he would take on the weight of the unbearable debt upon himself and that he was resurrected on the third day trusting in the person of who he says he is and what he did. I believe we need this Bible passage today because some of us have experienced suffering and hardship, trials and tribulations, so much so that they've knocked us down. We were running a race, and we got sideswiped. Somebody took your legs out from underneath you. Suffering, hardship, difficulties, challenges, whatever you want to call it, bullying, People who evil entered into and took advantage of you, did something against you, and they knocked you down. And sometimes when we're knocked down, we think that we're like, all right, I just need to stay down for a minute to catch my breath. I need to stay down for a minute to deal with my heart and my mind. I need to stay down. But can I tell you and warn you about this? In my journey over these last five years, my legs got taken out from under me for a couple of times. And when I got down, I just kind of thought, well, I'm just going to take some moments here and get my strength back. But can I tell you, there's Satan roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And you know who he goes after? The weak, the hurt, the ones that are down. So I'm not trying to tell you to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but I'm trying to say, Jesus, the one you have faith in, can pull you up. He extends that harm down to you to lift you up. And don't take a moment. Take a moment in Christ. Don't take a moment apart from Christ. Take a moment in Christ, and he will help you. But don't stay down. Find his hand and get lifted back up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The main verb is let us run with perseverance. It's a race. It's a foot race. It's not a short sprint. It's a marathon. It's from the beginning of walking with Christ to the end of your life. The race, and some of you are like, I didn't know I was running a race. (laughs) Like, look at me. Like, I'm I'm not ready for a race. I'm just going to tell you. If you have seen Jesus and said he is the Son of God who died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins and he was resurrected on the third day, whether you like it or not, you're running a race. And the theme is all throughout the Bible that when you walk with Jesus, you are not just walking, but you're running. 
And God wants you to endure, persevere to the end with faithfulness. Trusting in a person to the end. Even when the hard times come, even when you're knocked down, stomped on, spit upon, hurt emotionally, mentally, physically, will you persevere to the end? Will you say like a hymnus, come what may, I want to run. This can be seem pretty daunting that you're running this race, but look at what it says in that uh, verse 1. And let us run with perseverance, which we talked about to the end of life, the race marked out for us. The race marked out for us. Can I tell you, I think this is good news. Your race is different than my race, right? And so I'm, I'm thinking, I met Bill this uh, morning, and, and we were talking about, we actually ran a lot of the same races, didn't we? We were in the same high school, maybe at a different year, but we were running in the same high school, and then we went to the same churches, and we met the same kinds of people, and it was pretty amazing, but our races are different. You have a unique race marked out for you. God in Jeremiah says that he has a plan for your life. He who started a good work for you was faithful to finish that work in you. He designed the, the number of good works that you will do in your life. He marked out a race for you. And I love that. We, let me ask you this question. Are you running God's race or are you running a race that you marked out for yourself? You see the difference? Who's in the driver's seat? Who's in the passenger seat? And I would say... If I was just looking at my life, there are times that God is in the driver's seat and I'm in the passenger, and there are times that I move God over to the passenger seat and I take over. And so somebody taught me this idea of God's destiny versus my potential. My potential is this idea that all of us are gifted with some natural abilities, your mind, your physical strength, your engineering ability to fix things. Um, many of you have good looks and charm. You're very good at that. Some of you have the ability to sing. Some of us don't, and so we all have different abilities. And in our potential, maybe, at least for me, in my ambition to achieve, I went on a different race than what God had for me. I achieved a lot, but it was not the race God marked out for me. It was the race I marked out for myself. Are you running the race that God marked out for you? Are you running the race your spouse has marked out for you? Are you running the race that your boss is marking out for you? Or are you running God's race? That's my potential. God's destiny is what does he want? Lean into his understanding, his goodness, his wisdom, not into your own understanding, and he will make your paths straight. One of the modifiers here about running this race says this, being surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race. And you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, and it lists all these heroes of the faith, doesn't it? It's amazing, these heroes of the faith. And what it says is that they are witnesses to us. That these are the people who, when they were running the race of faithfulness, endured to the end. They made it to the finish line. When they breathed their last breath, they were faithful to God and his promises. In the New Testament time, we would say, are you faithful to the person of Jesus Christ? That is the fulfillment of the gospel. They, they are not saying to us, look back at Noah and do what Noah did. Look back at Abraham and do what... A no, they're saying, who did Noah put his faith in? God, the God of promises. Who did Job put his faith in? 
God, the God of promises, and the possible Redeemer like Abraham. So who did they put their faith into, and who are we putting our faith into? And so for me, when I'm going through times of suffering, I will look to Job. And I'll reread Job, and I'm thinking about the suffering. When God calls me to a place that I don't really understand why he's calling me, and he doesn't reveal, you know how God only lights a lamp unto your feet one step at a time, and he doesn't do the high beams to show you where you're going? I love that about God. <laughs> I wish he showed me everything. But I'll think about Abraham and how he was faithful in each step of the way. When God asks me to build something that I don't understand why I'm building, when people are attacking me for building it, which happened in Elginac, when we launched a campus in Elginac, there were people in the city accusing us at Woodside that we were building something that was an Islamic mosque. And we're like, what are you talking about? And so, but it's like Noah building this ark and people coming after him. But sometimes you need witnesses with flesh and blood that you know. You need somebody real in your life that, that you got to see live the life of faith. And for me, I, w- I grew up at the church called First Baptist of Hazel Park, nine mile and I-75, about an hour from here. And from birth, I went there with my family. And uh, during the time, at least in my 18, maybe my 18-year to 24-year-old period, there was uh, Pastor John Jelenic. And... Uh, that was the very first time that I ever got asked to do ministry. In fact, the story is, I was at Wayne State University in college. I was 20 years old, and I probably wasn't paying attention. You should all pay attention in class. And, uh, and so I, was, I wasn't really paying attention, and the, uh, the professor said, does anybody here believe in Jesus? And I, I raised my hand, and I looked around, and nobody else raised their hand. I'm like, uh-oh, so something's going down. <laughs> and so for 45 minutes, this professor went after my faith and just humiliated me. And I didn't know enough to defend the faith. I I just wasn't ready in that moment to defend the faith. And uh, I just left with, you know, I felt like I was down to my last shred of faith. I probably was a Sunday-only Christian, is what I would call myself. And, uh, And I just wasn't ready for those kind of attacks. And in that same week, under Pastor John's uh, leadership, they call me, they didn't know any of this, and say, would you like to lead the middle school Sunday school? Um, for middle schoolers. And I naively said, sure. Like, why not? I didn't know anything, right? I, uh, and then all of a sudden, you start studying the Bible because you don't want junior high middle schoolers to know more than you. And so you start studying and getting ready, and things went really good. And then fast forward to my 30s, and Pastor John, uh, I was through law school and practicing law, and I went to seminary just to be a better volunteer. I, I don't know. I just like to learn. I have an addiction to education. And um, he was my first professor. And I thought I knew something, right? I went to graduate school. I, I know something. I went in. I didn't understand three out of every five words he said. in Trinitarianism, right? It was about the Trinity. And I'm like, I don't know anything here. And so he was my first professor in seminary. And then he says, uh, a couple years later, he says, Bob, I know you want to be a pastor. Uh, I was now in my mid-30s. I said, yeah, I do. He goes, well, there's a church in Romeo. And I've been the interim pastor for 18 months. And I think you should come in and preach. They'll never hire you. You don't have any experience. You're a lawyer. You know, you're safe. You just get some preaching experience. And I said, sounds great. And so he got me my first role. And in nine months, unfortunately for that church, they hired me. And so they should have known better, right? Because in the secret meeting of interviewing me, they give me a five-page constitution and said, tell us what you like or don't like about it. And I rewrote nine pages. 
as a lawyer, you know, like, come in, and I go, this is the better version, and their mistake. <laughs> so, but Pastor John just passed away um, a couple, about a month ago, and I was at the funeral, and um, they did a video of him in the last couple weeks of his life, great theologian, um, wonderful man of God, somebody who I never had breakfast or lunch with. But he impacted my life so tremendously. In my hall of faith, Pastor John is there. Sometimes you need people with flesh that you've seen endure ups and downs who've made it to the finish line. And I would encourage you, if God has given one of those people in your life, think on them. Thank God for them. Think about their faithfulness in the up times and in the difficult times. Another modifier the Bible gives us is throw off everything that impedes our running so we can run the race. Throw off everything that impedes our running. So it certainly means temptations, sins, but the, if you go back to the original, I don't know if this will help you, but when they would run the race, they would have these beautiful, colorful, flowing robes, and they would take those off, and, and they would run the race without any hindrance. That's what the author is getting to. How will you run this race with Christ without hindrance? How will you run it with nothing impeding your race? You know, temptations and sins and all of those things are common, but maybe I can give you something that I've learned along the way that might be helpful. There's this idea of the dependent life on Jesus and the independent life apart from Jesus. And I, I know that most of us here are running with Jesus, but there are moments in our, in our worlds that we become independent. And for me, what it was, was I thought God was asking me to do things, and I just couldn't figure out how to do them. Like he would say, you know that person, that best friend of yours that came in and betrayed you, tremendously betrayed you, love your enemies. And I'd be like, I don't know how to do that. Like, and I just couldn't figure it out. And this one guy came along and taught me this idea. You know the throne of God, where we come boldly before the throne of God to pray. And one of the theologians kind of rephrased it and said, come to the throne of he will do it for you. And I, it sounds so simple, but at the right moment, at the right time, said the right way. I hope it impacts you like the way it impacted me. I chewed on that for a month, thinking, come to the throne of he will do it for me. God, I can't forgive this guy. He goes, you don't have to. I'm going to forgive him. And you just follow me. God, I don't know how to love my enemies. He goes, I know, you're not capable of doing that, but I'm capable, he says. And I will help you along the way. Come to the throne of he will do it for you. It's a very humble place to be. That's not how my parents raised me. My parents raised me, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get working, boy. You know, you're going to earn your pay. You're going to earn your way around here. If you want to continue living in this home, here are your plans, you know? And so that was kind of the culture I was raised in, probably a lot like you. But Jesus says, I know you can't do it. I didn't make you with the ability to do it. I made it so that some people will preach, God will never give you more than you can handle wrong. <laughs> God always gives you more than you can handle so that you run to him to help you. It's the whole part of the law, right? The law wasn't to be fulfilled perfectly. The law was to expose our inability, and that's the gospel. Jesus is the solution. Modifier number three, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let's run the race. 
At first glance, people might think the author is telling us to look to the heroes of the faith, but no. The author is saying, look to who they look to, a possible redeemer, a future redeemer, a God of promises. Now in the New Testament, we know that is fixing our eyes on Jesus. What does that mean? Remember, faith, hope is future-oriented. Faith is person-oriented, right? Faith is future-oriented like heaven, or something good will eventually come of this badness, but faith is person, Jesus-oriented. Do you believe in the person who he is and what he did? So this idea of focusing attention, fixating your eyes on Jesus, how do you do that? And I guess I would say we do it all the time. We do this all the time in life. When you want to, when something is valuable, important to you, you will fix your eyes on that. And I think the simple way for me to say it is, in every one of your sub-races, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your kids, with your parents, your relationship with your boss, your job, your career, your church, how are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? That you have faithfulness, that he is right there beside you. It's when we become hopeless, when we don't see Jesus around us, that's when we start to feel anxious. We feel uncertain. We don't know if God will show up. All I've been praying for for this whole time is not any of my words, but I've been praying that God would show up today. And if God shows up today, it's worth you coming, whether it's through the music, a prayer, the word, encouraging one another before you leave, if there's a hug I pray that God would show up for you in a very, very special way, focusing your eyes. The author says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Then he draws particular attention to the suffering of Jesus. Look at that in verse 3. It starts again at the verse 2. For the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says, fix your eyes on the suffering Jesus. Why? So that you don't grow weary and lose heart and give up the race. Look at Jesus, who suffered, had hardships and challenges, and it's all the way throughout the book of Hebrews. Let me show you one. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, so chapter 5, verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and petition with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Many places in the book of Hebrews and throughout the Bible, suffering Jesus, suffering Jesus. Jesus suffered. And he wants us to fix our eyes. So the author of Hebrews is saying, you're running a race, you're running a race. You can see the witnesses, you can, you're persevering, you know, throw off everything that hinders, and then fix your eyes on Jesus. What about Jesus? How he suffered and he endured to the end. The idea there, and I won't go too much into this, but the theologians in the room would like this. How do you have a Jesus who gets perfected, right? Jesus is perfect from, the, from eternity past. He is in heaven, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, perfect. Jesus comes in the womb of Mary, but wasn't he already perfect? He was already perfect. What was unique and new is he took on humanity onto his godliness. He was the God 
man. And so in his humanity, what they're getting at here is, would Jesus prove to be that perfected God? And every, through every suffering, through every suffering, he never gave up faith in the Father. He never gave up faith in the Father. And so he was perfect. We know from retrospect, looking backward, of course Jesus is perfect. But in the moment, would Jesus endure the suffering? Would he, in his humanity, he prayed that God the Father would remove it. You see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. You prayed that God, is there another way, God? And God the Father chose suffering for the path of Jesus. God the Father chose suffering for the path of his Son. If that's what God the Father chose for his Son, why would we be surprised that he didn't choose it for us. But is suffering bad in God's eyes? I don't think he's the author of sin. I don't think he is a creator of tumultuousness in your life, but that is naturally, inevitably going to happen in a cursed world. It's awful. This world is the closest we'll be to hell for those who believe in Christ. It's going to happen inevitably. Whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, you're going to suffer and have hardships, trials, and challenges. It's inevitable. It's the cursed world. The question is, will you fix your eyes on Jesus, and will he empower you? So just to kind of wrap this up into this next, you might need to take some time and think on these thoughts. Um, when you walk through suffering, I've walked through five years of, of challenge, my, my Job season, nowhere as bad as Job. I have my three beautiful daughters here, and I'm so thankful, unlike Job. But we named one of them after Job's kid, and so, so it was great. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And then the author of Hebrews says, I've had you focusing on Jesus, and now let me get into your business. You know how the big question is, how can a loving God allow so much suffering in our lives? I think he takes on the question. Look at verse 4. He's going to get personal. Now he switches from Jesus to you, and he says, in your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and dying. He just finished with the suffering Jesus, and now he gets in our faces and says, you're struggling, but have you struggled like Jesus? And if you have struggled like Jesus and suffered, will you persevere to the end? And then jump down to verse 7 just due to time. This was the verse that God just captured my heart. I hope he does it with you. He says, you know, here's my question going into all of this is, God, why is there so much suffering in my life? Why? And then he says, verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Endures trials and challenges and suffering and hardship as discipline. God's discipline as a loving God, a loving heavenly father, would mature, strengthen, and discipline his child. So I know one side of the coin is absolutely awful. I'm not trying to diminish your suffering, nor would I want you to diminish my suffering. You have been hurt. And that is real, painful. And on the other side of the coin, God invites you to put your faith in the other side of the coin also. In light of that suffering, would you choose by faith to see it as the Heavenly Father's loving discipline to mature you, strengthen you, so that you don't grow weary and lose heart and stop the race. And that's faith, if you'll choose to see it. Verse 7 has been a key verse for me uh, in battling the suffering and the difficulties. I don't believe he's doing this to punish us. 
I don't believe punishment is all on Christ on the cross. What is it? Why, God, why so much suffering? If it was good for Jesus, it can be good for us. Before the foundations and the creation of the world, Jesus, it was so visible and real in God's mind, Jesus was slain or killed on the cross. Suffering was always the plan. It was never plan B. It was always the plan. Suffering is difficult, but it is maturing, discipling, strengthening, so that we don't grow weary and lose heart and quit. There's a couple verses in the Bible you can take a look at. Hebrews 2.10 talks about God made Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation through what he suffered. Hebrews 2.18, because Jesus suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he suffered, he's able to help those who are tempted. And then in Hebrews 5 that we just read, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who... It's all the way throughout the Bible of suffering Jesus. You see it in the Psalms, the suffering servant. I came across this verse in Hosea 6.1, and it says, let us return to the Lord. Why did we leave? <laughs> let us return to the Lord. He tore us to pieces, but he will heal us. There is an ancient art form, and we're going to throw a picture up here, there's this ancient art form of repairing broken pottery known as kintsuji. Broken pieces of a cup or bowl or jar will be put back together with gold. And the gold highlights the brokenness of the bowl. There is no desire to hide the brokenness. In fact, the desire is to reveal the history, the, the life of the bowl, the jar, the, art, art, the pottery, by putting this gold on it to highlight the brokenness the philosophy of Kintsugi is embracing of the flawed or the imperfect. And Kintsugi is a metaphor for human brokenness and mending in Christ. We come to Christ in our brokenness. He lovingly puts us back together. And that brokenness becomes beautiful. When you get to heaven, do you want the nail-pierced hands to be healed? Or would you like to see them? Would you like to see the brokenness that is beautiful, that saved our very lives? And you may not realize it, and nor do I in its fullness, but in our brokenness, when we put our faith in Christ, people are seeing a witness in you. The witness is somebody who is not going to give up this race. No matter what comes, Ahimez would say, come what may. Regardless of the consequences, no matter how hard it is, no matter the difficulty of suffering, hardships, and trials, and they are awful, come what may, I want to run. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you. You're an amazing, wonderful, strong, compassionate Father. And you sent your son Jesus so that we could fix our eyes on him so that we wouldn't grow weary and lose heart. And God, I know some of us have been beaten down and we're down on the ground and we think we're safe for a moment and we're not. So may we see with our spiritual eyes that Jesus is reaching his hand to us to lift us back up on our feet to run the race with him, running to a throne of God of he will do it for me.
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.